The Keep Birth Wild podcast acknowledges the Wurundjeri people as the traditional owners and custodians of the land, sky and waters on which this project is produced, and we pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging. We extend this respect to all First Nations people on whose country we live, birth and raise children. We acknowledge the ongoing leadership, resilience and commitment of First Nations people who continue to fight for their right to safe and culturally appropriate experiences of pregnancy, birth and postpartum, and we commit to continuing to explore our own role in that journey. Lastly, we honour and celebrate the ancient birthing knowledge and practices that have existed on this country for thousands of years. May this wisdom continue to nurture life for many generations to come. Welcome to the Keep Birth Wild podcast. My name is Indy and through this series I'll be speaking to women who plan to birth their babies at home. Join me to hear home birth mothers sharing their stories of pregnancy, birth and postpartum. Hi and welcome to today's episode. I want to start with a quick thank you to Harriet for signing up as a patron to the show. Uh, yeah, huge, big thank you to you, Harriet. In this episode, Chelsea shares the pregnancies and births of her two children, Frankie and Miles. She suffered from hyperemesis gravidarum in her first pregnancy and also developed antenatal depression. So she really shares a raw account of how her expectations of pregnancy and postpartum were shattered and her long road to recovery through her work as a spiral practitioner. Chelsea's waters broke at 37 weeks and she went on to have a fast-induced birth in hospital. Frankie needed help breathing at birth and she didn't feel that initial love and bonding that she was expecting and went on to further experience depression over the following months. Following Frankie's birth, Chelsea was really scared about having another pregnancy and another baby. She did have one pregnancy which she miscarried and then she went on to conceive Miles. Miles' birth was going to be in hospital, um, but after separating from her husband when she was 30 weeks pregnant and then COVID restrictions limiting her birth support, Chelsea had an overwhelming desire to birth at home and was able to crowdfund enough money to cover a midwife. She went on to have a beautiful healing birth at home with Miles. Hi Chelsea, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. How are you? I'm good, thanks. I'm sitting by the lake here mm. in the sunshine, so nice morning. Mm, gorgeous. And you're Yarra Valley-based as well, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. I've been in the Yarra Valley for, um, for a number of years. I'm sort of moving back towards the suburbs, um, yeah, a bit more inner city pretty soon, hopefully. Hopefully. But, um, yeah, Yarra Valley. Mm, yeah. And would you like to share a little bit about yourself and your family and what you've been up to uh, during the last, well, sort of a bit strange with COVID, but whether you've been working or, or what you've been up to recently? Um, yeah, so I'm a, um, I'm a mum of two. I have a six-year-old daughter, Frankie, nearly six, and a four month, nearly four-month-old son, Miles. Um, and I'm a... Spiral practitioner. Um, I used to host women's circles in the Yarra Valley every fortnight, and um, yeah, I was sort of just starting my journey of running retreats and lots of stuff supporting women on their journeys um, to, I guess, self acceptance and um, self accountability and all that kind of wonderful, glorious stuff. Um, a lot of which has kind of had to be put on hold. 
thanks to COVID, but um, yeah, yeah. So that's so that's me. Mm, lovely, and yeah, taking things right back to when you conceived Frankie. How did how did her conception come about? Was that um, something that you were planning for a little while, or was she a happy surprise? Well, she was kind of a happy surprise. Um, she was a happy surprise that turned into just a surprise because <laughs> I wasn't very um, wasn't very joyous in my in my pregnancy with Frankie, but um, it was happy in that uh, my my husband and I had just got married. We just moved to Hillsville, um, you know, sort of starting our our new lives together. Um, and I found out that I had polycystic ovaries and uh, was told that it would be quite difficult to naturally plan when we would have children. Um, and it was one of those happy surprises that you hear about when you're told that kind of thing that, you know, two weeks later I was pregnant. <laughs> um, so, yeah, very much a, a shock. And, um, yeah, I'm not sure exactly what what the, the trigger was after that, but I sort of quickly fell into... Um, a pretty long-lasting depressive state in pregnancy with Frankie, um, and I was quite ill. It's very um, sort of had hyperemesis, um, more or less the whole the whole pregnancy. Yeah, I think mm. I was about eight months or something before I started um, subsiding that kind of nauseating, awful feeling. Oh gosh, that's mm. that's so tough in in yeah. a lot of ways. <laughs> Um, yeah. Do you think that kind of um, antenatal depression was kind of triggered by the hyperemesis or was there others or was it something else? And were you kind of, yeah, I guess what what work did you do to sort of help alleviate that or were you feeling better towards the end of your pregnancy at all? Well, I kind of, I, when I look back on um on pregnancy with Frankie, I, I really feel like it was just a completely different person to what I to what I am now. Like it just it feels like a whole other person. Um, I wasn't really helping myself. I didn't really know what to do about it. I kind of wasn't even aware that I was in that state while I was in it. I just kind of felt like this is just my life now. Um, you know, there were times where I just think like, oh. I, I kind of feel nothing and maybe this is just what life is. Um, yeah, it was looking back on that now, I just think, gosh, like if only you had have known that it could have been better, you know. Um, but, yeah, I think a lot of it was surrounding having expectations on what life would be um, and what pregnancy was like and for me, my experience of that was that my expectations were shattered every time, um, which kind of just kept that depressive state going and, yeah, really perpetuating um, that continuing for quite a long time. And, you know, I, when I speak to women about, um, about pregnancy expectations and things, that's something that uh, is so common but you don't really realise is so prevalent um, until perhaps after you've experienced uh, that kind of shattering um, feeling of having your expectations sort of not being fulfilled. Mm. Um, yeah, I remember uh, as a, a young girl, 
um, probably just, you know, 14, 15 years old when you kind of see, or in my experience, I saw pregnant women. I just thought, I can't wait to have kids. I can't wait to be pregnant and look like that. And um, I have this really vivid memory of seeing this woman walk out of a cafe. She was heavily pregnant in this really tight, beautiful white um, singlet and a really long emerald green kind of maxi skirt. I just remember thinking, oh, my God, she just looks so beautiful and healthy and happy. And that's what I'm going to look like when I'm pregnant. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, And it's funny how much weight I put on that image of that woman just that random stranger for 10 seconds in my life as a as a young teenager um yeah it's just you know it's fascinating what we what we um invest in in our minds absolutely and it's all reinforced by social media and movies and and and, i mean that is the experience for a lot of people I, i had an experience of pregnancy a bit like that so um, yeah, yeah. You hear those stories from people, and I guess when it's when it's as hard as it was for you, um, you know, you can't you can't do as much and get out as much, and you don't want to talk about it as much. And yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I remember having times where I really did look like I did really feel quite beautiful when I was pregnant. I made the effort to try and wear clothes that made me feel nice, you know, when I had to go to work, even though I felt like garbage. Um, And, you know, I did sort of make the best out of the situation that I could. It's like you hear about um, people who suffer from depression and they're like the most lively, upbeat, happy-looking people, you know, when they're around others. That was kind of my situation. Um, It was just the quiet moments where I'd go really inward and would be, yeah, quite miserable, just silently miserable. Um, mm. Yeah, and uh, the 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 big killer of um of of the expectations was you know when I sort of started letting people know that I didn't feel very okay, and it wasn't often that I would that I would own up to that. I had a very well-intended woman um, say to me. Uh, they, you know, I know you're having a hard time now, but they're going to hand you a baby at the end of this and you're just going to absolutely fall in love with it and everything's just going to melt away and you'll be fine. And that was sort of the next fixation. Um, I'm like, I just need to get to the point where they hand me this baby and I fall in love. And, you know, as much as I love Frankie, they, they handed me Frankie after my labour and I just thought, oh, shit, what do I do now? Mm. Um, because um, I didn't feel that. I didn't have that. And I thought, well, I'm failing again. This is me failing again because I can't love this baby. I don't know how to love this baby. Yeah, you know? that's such an, it's like, another really insensitive and almost dangerous kind of comment to put on people when they're pregnant. Yeah, and it's it's one of those really tricky situations because, you know, this woman – you know, although I wasn't very close to her, I know that she cares about me and and a lot of people feel like that's, you know, that's the quote-unquote like right thing to say when somebody's struggling, like it's going to get better, it's going to be okay. Um, I but was... really, I, you know, it would have been so much more helpful if somebody just said, you know, it might not be okay and I'm going to be with you anyway, you know, or it oh. might not be okay and we've got you. 
I was chatting to, I was interviewing somebody else last night and this, not the, not the same conversation, but the same theme came up and we're saying we need to get t-shirts that say shut up and hold space. <laughs> oh my God. I feel like this <laughs> all the time. I want a bumper sticker. I want it everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Shut up and hold space. Love it. Yeah. Just stop talking. Stop giving me advice. <laughs> stop yeah, trying yeah. to fix it. Yeah. Just listen to me. Yeah. Um, so with your first pregnancy with Frankie, what model of care did you choose to go with with her? So, you know, I was I was very much like not very outspoken. I didn't really speak up for my needs or anything like that. And I just thought I'm just going to have this baby in a hospital and you know, at that time I was like, oh, people who birth at home are weird. Like, <laughs> I was very judgmental. Um, yeah, it was just such a foreign concept, home birth to me, so it was always going to be that I would have this baby in a hospital and I almost, like, glamorised um, being in hospital to myself. Like, I actually really looked forward to staying in hospital and being looked after and um, it's quite funny. I, I've sort of carried that through childhood. I used to tell mum that I was like really sick and I <laughs> used to tell her that I had like appendicitis and I was in a lot of pain. She'd rush me off to hospital. And I was like, oh, thank God. I can just go and have a break in the hospital. <laughs> really strange. But uh, yeah, so I, um, I booked in hospital with Frankie um, originally at uh, the Mercy and ended up changing quite late to, um, to go to Box Hill Hospital. They just opened up the new the new maternity wing there and I was really hoping that that meant that I would be able to use one of their amazing birth pool um, baths that they have, which didn't end up being the case, but, yeah. Mm. Yeah. And, yeah, how did you find the care through them throughout your pregnancy? Was it um, basically what you are expecting or...? I was pretty, like, I was late to the game at Box Hill, so I didn't really, um, I think I only had one uh, midwife appointment there before I ended up going into labour, or before my waters broke, actually, I should say, because um, I did not go into labour by myself. But, um, yeah, it was it was a really tricky time frame. New hospital um, meant that they hadn't really ironed out a lot of their policies yet and so there was about a two-week time period where if you were pregnant and had opted out of the is it gbs swab the yeah i think so yeah yeah the swab if you'd opted out of the swab which is optional um at that hospital uh they had to assume that you tested positive and so i I thought I'm going to see if I can just make a decision based on what I want in this pregnancy. It was like the first time I'd actually gone, what do I want to do? I'm not going to take this swab. I'm putting my foot down. And, um, yeah, it backfired because <laughs> I showed up. My waters broke naturally um, at 37, uh, 37 and 5. And I showed up at hospital, just the routine yeah, there's no meconium, your waters are broken, expecting they were going to send me home and I'll come back when I'm actually in labour. And they said, well, you can't leave. Um, you have to stay here until you have this baby now and you're on a time frame. 
because uh, my waters are broken. And were they so wanting was, you to have antibiotics straight away if they were assuming that you were GBS positive? I actually can't remember. I can't remember what what they did in terms of the GBS positive. Um, I was hooked up to a drip pretty, pretty quickly, uh, but I have no recollection of, you know, whether they put antibiotics in me or whether that was just fluids or, yeah, mm. I've got no idea on that. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so once once you'd arrived, um, I think you mentioned before that you were induced, but, at, yeah, what point were you, did you have ideas about how you wanted the birth to play out that you were kind of pushing for or did things just sort of follow what their policy was? I, um, I was never really big on a whole birth plan. Um, I, I kind of, by this point, I've, I had realised that if I put a plan in place, I'm just going to be disappointed. So, and how's that for a, how's that for a little snapshot of my mind frame back then? Yeah. If I plan anything, I'm going to be disappointed. So just don't, don't bother. Mm. Um, but I, I basically wanted to go as long as I could without pain relief. Um, I didn't really know what intervention meant. Uh, and I was terrified of a C-section. That's all I knew going into this labor. Um, yeah. Mm. So how did things play out once you, once you'd arrived at hospital at, yeah, at what point did, did they start your induction? Well, they wanted to see if I could get into labor on my own, um, which of course 37 and five, it, it was, um, I recently found out that it was most likely that Frankie's head just went in an odd position and accidentally broke my waters. Um, because my body was so not ready to go into labour, sort of having contractions on and off. Uh, they would speed up and they would have none for like half an hour, 45 minutes, sometimes an hour. Um, and then they'd crank back up again. It was really frustrating and exhausting. Um, and I think I did that for um, probably about 24 hours Um they sort of let me go for about 24 hours um, trying to get myself into labour. And, of course, you know, being in the mind frame that I was, it was just I can't get myself into labour. My body's not doing what it's meant to be doing. I'm failing at this too, you know, um, which was quite harmful uh, mentally, I think, and was probably likely stopping a lot of my labour progression was just this worry that I'm failing at it, you know, and the stress of I'm having midwives come in saying, well, you've only got X amount of time left um, before we're going to have to maybe see about a C-section. You know, it, it's like it was just this looming, this looming darkness that, we, that I was getting so close to every minute that I wasn't getting myself into labour. It was closer mm. to the thing that I feared the most, you know. Oh, gosh, that's that's horrible, and especially when the next step isn't a C-section. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I, I, I had no idea of any of that. You know, I was somebody that trusted the doctors. I'm in the hospital. This is the best place for me. You know, very much stuck into that mind frame um, of, like, these people know what they're doing and so I have to trust them. Mm, yeah. Which, um, yeah, we hear 
so often is actually not exactly the case a lot of the time. Some people have wonderful birth experiences at the hospital and I'm really like glad that that's that that's the case. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, was not was not exactly mine. And yeah. just in the interest of time because it'd be nice to have plenty of time to um, go over Miles's birth. Would you like to just mm. kind of run through how the rest of that birth played out in the hospital? Mm. Yeah, so um, so I labored on my own for about 24 hours on and off. Uh, I remember being induced. Uh, there was, um, yeah, a drip went in. There was fluids put in me to induce me. Um, I pretty much went from zero to a million. <laughs> um, yeah, really, really quickly. And um, I, think, I think it was written down that I labored for about five hours um, yeah, I remember just all of a sudden I couldn't see, like <laughs> you go into that kind of white vacant place in your mind where you feel like you're in another planet. And, um, I was so exhausted by that point cause I hadn't slept properly and eventually sort of caved into, um, pethidine just so that I could sleep between my contractions. Cause I was just exhausted. My, my body was, was exhausted and, it wasn't doing what felt naturally for my body to do. Um, so uh, when Frankie, yeah, when it was sort of transition labour, I think I only pushed for about 20 minutes and Frankie was born. Um, I'd really hoped that we'd have delayed um, delayed cord, uh, what's it called? Uh, delayed cord clamping. I think delayed cord clamping, yeah. But uh, because of the pethidine, Frankie came out um, quite limp, which I didn't realise was going to happen. <laughs> um, and so they had to pretty much cut her off and whisk her away to resuscitate her. And, um, yeah, it was just all, I just remember it being a big panic. Um, I was being stitched up for minor grazing and not really knowing that I'd didn't really need to be stitched up like so many top times during that labor that I now realize I could have said, well, hang on a second. What do I have a choice in this? You know? Um, and I never questioned any of it because I was in the hospital, but, um, yeah. So, so that was kind of the whole experience. Um, mm. oh, and there was, you know, the, the one thing that I'd like to suggest to people is, when, the, when you're asked in a hospital if it's okay to have student midwives come in to assist or, you know, to observe, um, ask them what their role is going to be. <laughs> so my, my student midwife um, had accidentally pushed Frankie's head back in, after, like, as I was crowning. Um, uh, yes, I... I wasn't sure that she was going to be actually participating in, in any of the labour process and she made one mistake twice and um, felt like I'd birthed her head three times by the time she came out. It's not a fun experience. So always ask what the role of the student midwife is going to be. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because like of advice on that one. And observing is very different to like learning a new skill on the job on you. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, and also when you're in transition labour, you can't exactly give consent um, to a student sort of participating in any way. You know, you're not really even present yourself in that moment. Mm. And I guess that's one of the benefits of a birth plan, even if you're, exactly. you know, if you can be conscious that it's not necessarily going to go and you're not attaching yourself 100%, but just to have those yeah. things written down, how you feel about things that are sort of not negotiable for you or that are relevant for any eventuality, then yeah. you've got a little bit of protection when you can't speak up for yourself at that point. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, once after she was born, how was that sort of initial transition into motherhood and early postpartum for you? Um, yeah, unfortunately, Unfortunately, that um, that expectation of being handed a baby that I would immediately fall in love with was another expectation that was um, just not one that came to fruition for me. And I had this distinct feeling like I, I need to pretend. Um, you know, I didn't want to disappoint the people around me. Like I didn't want to disappoint my family members or, you know, my husband at the time. Um, by letting it be known that I didn't feel anything. Um, you know, and there's that, that worry that, like, I, I was I was in a pretty bad way mentally and I was really also scared that this baby was going to be taken away from me if I don't look like I'm in love with her. Um, so, yeah, early early motherhood was really quite challenging for me personally. Outwardly, it Sometimes I'm sure it looked like I was a great mum and knew exactly what I was doing and I kind of relied on that a lot, um, made sure that I was out and about every day with the baby um, because if I was in public then people were watching me and I had to do okay. Uh, and that was just like such a huge survival instinct was get up in the morning, get out of the house, be in public. Um which, you know, says a lot about some of the ways that um, mothers with postnatal depression cope, you know. Mm. It's like survival instincts kick in and that was mine for me. Wow. Know? And did you reach a point where you or somebody else realised that you needed help or I guess, yeah, what was the sort of, yeah, it sounds like it must have, either reached a crisis point or you started to be able to heal and move out of it on your own. So, yeah, I guess yeah, how did that depression of, develop? I did have a lot of support around me. I was staying um, I was staying a lot at my parents' house. Um, uh, I, was, I was seeing a counsellor at that stage, uh, probably I think Frankie was probably about six months, nine months old or something when I started seeing a counsellor. Um, but really I, I, I kind of felt like even though I was putting things in place, it didn't feel like things were moving. Um, I was just experiencing less of it, I guess. Uh, yeah, it, it wasn't that, that the experience of my depression was lessening. It was just that the time frame that I felt completely unable to succeed in life was was getting shorter every day, I think, yeah. Mm. Wow, yeah. Sounds like a really long, long journey. 
yeah yeah it did take a really really long time um yeah i think it was mm, two and a half years after so frankie was about two and a half nearly three years old before i really felt like oh, i actually feel like i might be out of this um yeah and it, that that was um thanks to yeah some friends of mine who um who helped me just like with um emotional clearing and and holding space you know finding a women's circle really sort of diving into um into that you know shut up and hold space kind of um yeah place it's fantastic um because i never experienced that before it was always just people would try seem to want to fix me um wanted to fix the situation wanted frankie to be loved um and all of that was very well intended but you know as as a lot of us find when we when we do find those places that hold space and stop giving advice and stop trying to fix um we realize that that's that's actually the magic that creates that shift um it's not exactly like striving to be fixed you know yeah and a situation where people are trying to fix it externally is not a situation which is safe for you to go deeper into yeah. the bits that need to be unraveled and you know that's what I think is really healing about people who can actually safely hold space when you're having a hard time is that you can go just that little bit deeper and release into it and um mm. yeah get to the get to the gritty bits safely yeah. and while being held by somebody else because you know it's not always possible to do that on your own and it's certainly not or mostly not possible to do that if you're in a situation where people are just looking at the outside picture and wanting to fix it or do practical things mm. or change mm. or just use kind of change as a way to distract you and yeah mm. and even like relating their own stories to what I'm expressing it's like, oh, I feel like this and, you know, having somebody respond with, oh, yeah, I remember feeling sort of like that one time when this happened. It's like, <laughs> oh, hang on a sec. <laughs> it's not about you, actually. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but, yeah, like finding a women's circle, um, you know, I'd never heard of a women's circle before the first time I went. I was like, what is this um, crazy hippie voodoo shit? <laughs> but I was all about it as soon as I arrived. I'm like, oh, it's home. That's what it is. And so much so that, um, yeah, it inspired me to start holding my own women's circle um, because there was just so much magic there, so much magic in the shut up and listen, yeah. Mm. And was that something that you sort of started doing in between Frankie and Miles or? Yeah, yeah. So um, I think I've been holding circles for three years now, nearly three years. So. It was, it was as I was coming out of my, my own depression that I started facilitating circles with a, um, a friend of mine in the valley. It was, it was actually uh, an open circle, so all gendered um, at the beginning. And, yeah, slowly I realised that I, I need, like I actually felt more called to hold space for women because, because of my own experiences and how much magic I I experienced um, in women's space. Mm. Mm, yeah. Yeah, and then 
that's yeah that's amazing that you kind of had that transition before your next pregnancy so how was kind of your conception and pregnancy with miles was that a really different experience or did a lot of the same stuff come up again well my experience of being of conceiving miles um was very very different um i after after being pregnant with frankie and that whole experience and the depression and everything um I was like, there is no way I'm having another child. <laughs> there is absolutely no way I'm doing this again. <laughs> it, it could potentially be as as difficult as it was then, and I'm not willing to make that risk again. And that was sort of the yeah the belief system that I carried through. Um, I had one pregnancy uh, in between Frankie and Miles, which I miscarried quite early, and and there was magic in that too. Like it was such a, a profound. Um, and I can say now that I actually feel like it was a really beautiful experience, uh, having a miscarriage, um, and being able to, you know, be in women's space during that was, um, was really quite beautiful, uh, and healing, healing with pregnancy, healing with mother, motherhood and everything. Um, and so conceiving miles, I always feel like. I've known Miles since I was a teenager. I've known what this person, this being, this spirit felt like in some form from from very early on in my life. Um, and I always kind of felt like this this feeling, this presence is something that I'm going to know throughout my whole life, whether I choose to, you know, bring this child into the physical world or whether this is just you know like uh what's the label that people put on um things like this is maybe my spirit guide or something that just stays with me and i feel this presence every now and then when i need um when i need something um yeah but i remember uh before conceiving miles um, just feeling like I have this feeling like I'm going to have, I'm going to be pregnant again soon and, um, feeling Miles's presence coming in closer and closer and closer and, um, and having conversations with him in meditation. So whenever I'd go into a meditative state for a portion of time before I conceived him, he would show up and ask me if it's, if it's time yet. And we'd have conversations about like, no, nope, not ready for you yet. No, nope, I can't do it. No, nope. <laughs> like shut him down so many times before one day I was like, okay, if we're going to do this, and I felt like it was coming, if we're going to do this, this is what I need from you. And almost like signing contracts in the ethereal realm during a meditation process. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going, I don't know why, but I need you to be a Gemini. I need you to be like a generator, a manifesting generator in your human design. I need you to be my ally. I need you to be like this and this and this. It sounds really, um, it sounds almost like materialistic. Like I need you to be the cookie cutter baby, perfect being, or I can't have you in my life physically. Like it's just, <laughs> it was a bit cutthroat, but um, yeah. And, and I heard very strongly the message back um, you have four months to prepare. And I thought, oh, okay, we'll see where this goes. Um, 
you know, at that point I was still somebody that questioned my guidance, questioned my abilities for, you know, receiving this sort of message and, and really trusting whether it was truth or not, or whether I was just making it up in my head, you know. Um, lo and behold, I was pregnant on month five. So I spent that four months really diving into what beliefs I held about pregnancy, what my fears were, um, yeah, what I what I hoped pregnancy would be like, what are my expectations this time around, and how do I be okay with both that happening and that not happening, you know. Um, mm. And, yeah, it was my work as a spiral practitioner that really helped um helped me hold my own space in that preparation period uh, so that I could pretty much handle whatever was thrown at me or whatever I could possibly think would be thrown at me during that pregnancy. Mm. Mm. And how was the pregnancy? <sighs> well, it was actually pretty wonderful, I think. Um, I was still quite ill for, for a while. Um, not nearly as ill as I was with Frankie and I had my routine down pat where I'd wake up in the morning, I'd go and run to the toilet, I'd have my morning spew and, and I just remember if I can get out a morning spew then I won't be nauseous all day and that was kind of just the, the rhythm of things and I surrendered to it and I think that was just the best the best way that I could deal with it was just give yourself over to however this is going to work. Mm. Um, and yeah. I did feel really beautiful and um, and luscious pregnant with Miles. Um, I achieved so much. I was um, I travelled I travelled to Byron Bay to a support um, a practitioner training up there when I was uh, 20 weeks pregnant just before my 30th birthday. Um, you know I was holding space, still working during that time. And I just felt like I had so much purpose um, in life when I was pregnant with Miles. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And this time around you chose home birth. What, how, how did you come to that decision and what sort of factors were at play there? So when I conceived Miles, I had this very, very distinct vision that came through that of me birthing at the, in the front room of my parents' house in a pool and I thought I don't know how I'm gonna how I'm gonna manifest that like okay I'll just I'll hold that vision but I don't know what that means you know uh, because I had basically booked in for the hospital I booked into Box Hill Hospital again um, and I was you know this time around I was like I feel like I'm gonna have a birth plan I'm gonna go in prepared I know what I can say yes and no to um, and really, I, I desperately wanted to have a home birth, but it was something that we just couldn't afford. Um, you know, the, it's quite a large financial uh, commitment where we lived, not being in a catchment area uh, for supported home births. Um, well, that's probably not the right terminology, but yeah. Um, I think, yeah, if you're not, you have to be in the catchment of the hospital to be a part of the yeah, publicly funded yeah. home birth yeah. scheme or whatever it's called. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and we weren't, so it was going to cost, you know, six, $7,000 all up. Um, 
you know, with the birth and the pool and the pre and postnatal visits and um, midwife um, bills and things like that. So it's just, you know, a no brainer that we just couldn't do it. And um, it was actually thanks to COVID, um, uh, my husband and I went through a separation in April just as um, isolation was starting. Uh, things sort of started feeling like, you know, this COVID thing might actually be getting a bit serious in Australia. And, um, yeah, my husband and I separated at that time, which, how you know, many, it was... How many weeks pregnant were you then? I think I was 30 weeks pregnant. Okay, yeah. Yeah. That's, so it was that's quite huge. challenging. Um, yeah, I just I remember just holding trust that, okay, if this is if this is what's happening in my life, then it must be the right thing for me. Like it must be perfect in some way. Um, and while it was, yeah, really emotionally difficult and, you know, very complicated, you know, being pregnant and uh, um, also with, with having a daughter already and, you know, schools being shut down and um, there's no daycare and there's, it's like, I don't even know what life is like right now. Um, and it was, it was the same time that it had just been announced that there would only be one support person allowed in hospitals and uh, checking in with, with, you know, my heart and soul at that time, I was experiencing a lot of um, emotional pain with separating from my husband. And I just remember thinking, I don't want him to be the only person with me. Like, part of me is not very happy with him right now. <laughs> um, and, yeah, just really craving him to be there still. You know, this is our baby and I wanted him to be there. But I, I, needed, I needed people there for me. Um, and, again, that vision popped in of me giving birth at the front room of my mum's house and going, how the hell am I going to fund a home birth? I'm 40, I'm 30 weeks pregnant. You know, uh, I don't know the first thing about booking in a home birth. And I called in my support crew, my group of women. We had a little Zoom, um, a Zoom, we call it like a mother's blessing <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just so crazy that, you know, we planned to do this in person and it was it was just those crazy weeks where you're going, oh, hang on, we can't see each other. Like, what can we do? And I remember speaking that desire, like, I really feel like I need to have a home birth and I don't know how to make it happen. Um, and those women, like such beautiful, beautiful women and my mum and my sister as well, they basically set up a GoFundMe um, and said, right, here's, here's your GoFundMe. We're doing this. Like, you're going to get this. This is going to be your experience. We're going to make it happen. And we raised all of the money that we needed in seven days. Wow. Um, and it was just, it was such a whirlwind. I mean, I was in the midst of separating and pandemic and, you know, my daughter was experiencing in between, like being in between schools and waiting for um, assessments for neurodivergence and there was so much stuff going around me and, and to feel like all of a sudden not only were these women 
supporting my vision, there was hundreds of friends, family, strangers, people I'd never heard of or met before that were giving me money because they believed in my vision and, you know, they wanted to invest in me having the experience that that I could see happening. Um, it was just such a such a, a surrender, you know. Mm. Oh, that's incredibly beautiful and, yeah, really nice. After, you know, it sounds like you did a lot of work in holding space for a lot of people and you really got to receive back in return. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, often receiving is, is quite uncomfortable for people um, and it was uncomfortable for me very much so at that time. And, I mean, you know, all of a sudden I'm, I've got, you know, five $6,000 in my bank account so that I can have a home birth when people were losing their jobs, you know. People were losing their houses. People were losing all of their security and here I was being handed thousands of dollars so that I could have the birth experience of my dreams. Mm. It was just absolutely gobsmacking, profound, huge, yeah, huge lesson in receiving. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm so, so grateful for that whole experience. It's really, really wonderful. And yeah. how did you go finding a midwife at such short notice? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, was, um, I was on a Facebook group actually and I just remember going, okay, so all of a sudden I'm having a home birth where do I even shop for a midwife in a pandemic, you know, <laughs> and I've only got 10 weeks to go. Um, and I remember calling about five or six midwives around the area and they were all booked out. They were all busy. Um, and there was one, one midwife who was supposed to be going overseas at the time that I was um, likely to give birth. And, of course, borders were closed. We couldn't go anywhere. And all of a sudden there was a midwife available. And um, she lived five minutes from my mum's house. <laughs> oh. So it was just, you know, like the universe providing everything I needed right at the perfect time because, of course, my vision was something that was going to come to fruition, you know. Yeah, so it was um it was difficult and then like seamlessly so easy. It's just handed to me. Mm. Mm. So at what point did you go into labor and what were some of the early signs of your labor starting? Well, I mean, I'd have um I'd had Braxton Hicks for quite a few weeks and um I just remember getting progressively more uncomfortable and you know, I was in my head at this time. I thought, oh, yeah, well, I have early babies because I had Frankie at 37 weeks, um, you know, and then coming to the realisation that, oh, that was actually probably just like a little um, mishap in my waters breaking naturally. Um, and so I remember getting quite frustrated, you know, 37 weeks went by, 38 weeks went by, 39 weeks went by, and I'm going, oh, you know, I should have had my baby by now. I'm getting really impatient. And, um, yeah, I was actually awake one morning. Um, I would wake every morning at 3 or 4 a.m. and I'd be awake for a couple of hours for no good reason before going back to sleep, <laughs> as uh, as pregnancy often does to women. Um, 
And I remember being really awake one morning and turning on my phone and flicking through Instagram and I actually found your podcast. Um, yeah, <laughs> I remember finding your, your podcast and seeing your face going, I recognise her. Um, and I sat up in my bed and listened to your birth story, Indy. Um, <laughs> it was, yeah, it was about 5 a.m., and I remember thinking, oh, it goes for over an hour and, you know, I kind of hoped that I'd be back asleep by then. But I was so engrossed in listening to your birth story and your beautiful podcast and going, oh, my God, this is going to be sort of like what I'm about to experience. And I just remember going into like a dream state where I was just imagining that, you know, the, the beauty of, of, you know, the the way that you described some really wonderful moments in your birth. Um, I remember just letting myself dream that, that, that I might have those kind of experiences too. Um, and I remember about, <laughs> it's probably only a minute after the podcast ended and I turned my phone off, uh, I had my first contraction and just kind of sitting with that going, Oh, are we starting now? Like, is this it? This is, this is happening. Um, it was just such a really like peaceful, quiet moment all on my own and just entering sort of my first contraction and the beginnings of labor as, as me, as a woman who could do it on her own, who could, you know, it's such a symbolic, um, moment. Yeah. Oh, that's so special. I'm, honoured to have been sharing my story yeah. as in the moments before you went into labour. Yeah. Very special. <laughs> and so it was kind of the early hours of the morning then. How did your early labour sort of play out into the day? At that point I'd had so many like stop and starts. I'm going, oh, is this it? Is this it? And everyone would get really excited and we'd all like rush around the day trying to organise everything and, and it would just not be labour. So this, when this was happening, there was something in me that was like, just don't tell anybody, just be quiet with it, you know. And so I just remember just writing down the times. Um, there's another one, I'll write down the time. And there was a beautiful moment where uh, I'd been teaching my daughter how to write numbers um, in the week leading up to this and she and I woke up and got up before the rest of the house and um, and I got her to write down the numbers of of uh, the time when the, I was having contractions. So I've got this beautiful piece of paper that's got her scribbly um, kind of very wobbly number writing on it and it was both of us getting ready for her brother to be born. You know, it's just really beautiful. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so I just sort of had contractions pretty much that whole day um, and it wasn't until the evening that they started getting closer together and more consistent and um, yeah, it was almost like I didn't didn't really even acknowledge what was about to happen. I was just sort of experiencing one at a time. I just felt really present that day. Um, yeah, and I think it was about midnight that I really sort of really went into it. Um, you know, my contractions were 
a couple of minutes apart or four four minutes apart or something like that and they were lasting quite a long time and one o'clock I think the midwives came um, and I it was about the same time that I got in the pool uh, in the front room of my mum's house <laughs> mm. and it was just exactly as, as the vision that I had um, was exactly played out just like that um, and yeah, I was in the birthing pool, contracting, um, had really beautiful music playing and was kind of just left to do it. Um, yeah, my my now ex-husband um, was, I, I sort of said, I actually just want you to be next to the pool the whole time. Like I don't, I didn't want him to leave. I wanted him to be there and to experience exactly what I was going through. But on the other side of the pool, um, you know, there was this uh, feeling like I need you to do this with me. Like we started this together. We needed to end this together. Like um, this pregnancy, I mean. Uh. So, yeah, and that, that in itself was, was actually Kind of the kind of space holding that I needed was don't ask me what I need, don't ask me if I'm okay, just sit there and if I reach for you, be there so I can grab you, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So unfortunately, I I didn't get to birth miles in the pool in the water. Um, I wasn't uh, I wasn't fully dilated when my body wanted to start pushing. And so as much as we tried to sort of persist, um, I just succumbed to the fact that I need to get out of this pool and then my baby will be born, you know. <laughs> we need gravity to help a bit and pressure. And um, I was whisked out of the pool and laid down on the floor in the front room of my mum's house and um, I had Miles probably 10 minutes after that. Mm, wow. Mm. And... Um, what was the, were you kind of, did you have a stronger sensation of him moving down the birth canal and crowning and being birthed given that you hadn't had, I mean, you had the pethidine last time, which can make people feel a little bit groggy. Was it, yeah, do you feel like yeah. you had a more conscious experience of the birth? Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's just that very strange feeling of I'm here but I'm not here um hmm. yeah it was it was quite present although I think at that point I was you know I kind of went into like um uh just I need this to be done now like I, I sort of was quite fearful um of things going wrong yeah I think I'm not quite sure how to answer that question actually mm. no that's okay mm. yeah what were those early minutes and hours after his birth like and at what point was did you have an urge to push out the placenta or how was how was the placenta birthed so um the earlier moments were were really amazing like I just had this overwhelming feeling like I did this and I did it on my own you know it was it was um it was really strong uh realization that maybe I am okay on my own maybe I can do this by myself like maybe I can you know move forward in my life as a single mom 
and I'll be okay because I did this on my own, you know. Um, yeah, it was it was um, such a special bonding time as well because they handed me my baby and I fell in love. And yes, that was really big. That was a really big moment. Um, and I also kind of had the strength within myself to say, when, I'm, when I have this baby, I don't want anybody else to touch him until I say that that's okay. <laughs> um, and having that be respected was really, really important. And, and it was. And so, you know, even transitioning me from the floor up onto a comfy couch and getting cleaned off, you know, I was being lifted up. Nobody was touching the baby. And I was being wrapped up with the baby, you know, naked on the couch, wrapped in blankets with my baby on me. And we laid there together for hours without anybody else coming and, and interfering or touching or um, it was quite early in the morning too. It was about four, 20 past four in the morning. So everybody just kind of went off to bed and went to sleep and I just got to be quiet with my baby wrapped in blankets on the couch. Um, That's just so just feeling, beautiful that you got to be protect, yeah. really protected in that way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I didn't realise how how important that would feel. Um, but, yeah, it was probably one of the most important moments of my life because uh, I, I was experiencing the bubble that people talk about and I'd never experienced that bubble before. Um, and it was so just so overwhelmingly potent with oxytocin and, and just joy and exhaustion and warmth and love and it was it was really stunning it's really stunning um i yeah my my placenta i'm not i'm not really sure about how to answer that either i was quite fearful of birthing my placenta and um and uh, I remember my body just kind of going, nope, don't want to do it. I'm going to hold on to this placenta. I'll take it to my grave. You know, I <laughs> didn't want to do it after birthing a baby. Um, so, yeah, I had I had assisted, um, assisted placenta birth with the midwives, which um, which actually went as, as smoothly as it probably could have done. It was still quite painful and um, and they looked after it really well uh i had my placenta encapsulated so yeah it was um it was just sort of respectful and and just needed to happen so it happened you know mm, yeah and i mean yeah it sounds like I, well everything is intense at the moment because of covid but particularly kind of embarking on the journey of parenting with a newborn as a single mum right from the start um, on top of that and, you know, and I guess also exploring a completely different experience from with your first baby is I'm sure, you know, I'd love to have hours to dive into mm -hmm. what the last four months has been like for you. But, um, you know, very briefly, if there's any kind of, yeah, if there's anything in particular that you'd like to share out of that time 
um, that's, yeah, feels important for you to share as part of your birth story. Mm. Yeah, go for it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, well, I guess um, single parent to me at that point was really just, um, it was sort of an identity that I had to remind myself of um, the situation with my husband and I separating during COVID and being pregnant. You know, we were very conscious that uh, I I didn't want to move out yet. Um, I I wanted him to be living with me still, so that when I had this baby, I would have the help. Um, and I didn't really want to move in with my parents full time. I sort of lived um, I lived between the two houses uh, since the beginning of the year, basically um, before before lockdown really even was a thing. Um, and so, yeah, my, my ex and I uh, decided that we would still live together until, you know, the end of this year. We're sort of um, in the process of finding places now. And, um, yeah, as much as that was really uh, difficult emotionally and mentally and triggering, um, it's also been a... a a big gift in a lot of ways, you know, um, I was able to process a separation basically in real time with my ex being my only, you know, masculine identifying person who could hold space for me processing a breakup. It was just the most, um, strange time. Mm. My, um, my ex and I, are. Uh, good friends you know I have his support he he's around with the kids he helps with Frankie a lot he um he is doing a lot and as much as it you know as much as it's hard to still be trying to convince myself that I'm a single parent (laughs) even though I'm living with my ex-partner um it's really hard but you know this isn't the worst situation that I could be in Um, and it's showing me a lot about myself. It's showing me a lot about what still needs healing. Um, you know, what can still be grown on and, and showing me a lot about how to, how do, how do I continue living my life with my heart open, even after all of the experiences and the, um, you know, the difficulties that I've had in the last nine months, um, yeah, it's been it's been challenging to say the least, but yeah, it's been been a real gift. And now I have a nearly four month old baby, and mm. you know I don't want to be one of those mums, but like he's a dream. He's just an absolute dream baby. <laughs> he <laughs> eats, sleeps, and giggles, and that's that's about it. You know, it's mm. just um. Yeah. So gorgeous. Yeah. So gorgeous. I've seen some videos of him on Instagram and he's just too cute. (laughs) Yeah, he's my little smiley boy. Yeah. Smiley Miley as we call him. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. It was such a pleasure to hear it. And, um, yeah, I feel like a lot of people will will really resonate with this story. So, yeah, thank you for sharing so vulnerably and, 
yeah yeah absolutely you're most welcome and and yeah I love to I love to speak to women and I, I you know I like hearing about um you know people who relate to my experience I guess so yeah I guess if you are re- relating or if this is resonating with you at all I'd love to know about it yeah mm, any of the listeners I mean yeah great awesome thank you I hope you enjoyed hearing Chelsea's birth story. You can find more photos of Chelsea and her family on Instagram or on the Keep Birth Wild website. And you can also find links to my Patreon page in the show notes where you can sign up as a patron to the show. Thank you.